you have a Bible with you, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. The Gospel according to Matthew, second chapter. A month or so ago, we began looking at this Gospel, and our intention is not merely to use it as a jumping point, a launching point into Advent season, which we studied for a number of weeks together, but in fact to stay in this book now all the way through to the end. We're not going to be quitters. There's no quit in us. So we started a book, and we're going to try to get through all the way through to the end If the Lord gives us Sunday after Sunday, that's our intent. Now, one of the bits of explanation that we want to give as we look at whole books, what is one of the gifts of reading a whole book, is to remember that these are letters or records that are recorded as one message. So the Bible itself is one big message concerning Jesus, the hope of the world, and then each letter written and given as a message too. So at the same time that we take short little chunks and study it because each word is breathed out by God, we also have a desire to give the big themes of a book and say, how does Matthew, for instance, compare or contrast to the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke and John? We have put a major theme over all of the book, and it comes into full view this morning. We have called this series or this book of the gospel according to Matthew, King and Kingdom. Because Matthew's angle, his lens, his perspective concerning the birth of Jesus, in fact, the whole ministry of Jesus, is to convince all who would encounter him that Jesus is the rightful king of all the earth. We drove by a a church bulletin board that we often pass, and it had left up over the Christmas, the holiday season, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And even by reading it, you begin to hum it, right? You, you know where it's at. This is one of the most consistent phrases. Our kids pointed out, or had a, we had a little bit of a grammatical discussion about whether the sign was wrong or why it's written that way. What does present tense, Jesus being present, mean versus past and these kind of things. But beyond that, I think what Matthew would have us think about and what I'm struck by is that that really is a question mark. Is it a good thing that the Lord has arrived? If Jesus comes down with virginal conception, the miraculous conception of Jesus, my guess is that his birth was quite regular. It was his conception that was miraculous. Is it a good thing that God landed in sort of a superhero pose on the earth? The song says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. But what Matthew's going to show us at the beginning of chapter 2 is that this Lord brings with him a claim. If he is in fact the Lord, that means that anyone else who has a claim to being Lord needs to step aside. If he is king, then he's going to bring a kingdom that's going to begin to spread from his feet. And that means that every other kingdom that has worked and and fought with blood and sweat and tears and been striving against one another down through the generations needs to give way. If the kingdom of Jesus is to wax... So that eventually, like waters covering the earth, there will be no end to his government. Then the governments that be, both internally, personally, and historically, by region, will need to wane. And So the question of Matthew chapter 2 is, how does the world receive the news that the Lord is come? Is it all joy? Yay! someone to rule me? Or, 
Will the fact that the Lord has come mean that there will be a parsing out, a separating of those then who would come to the king? And what I want to do is take a look at the first six verses of Matthew chapter 2 and see this lens that Matthew is showing us, which is essentially this. The entirety of the book of Matthew is about a king who has landed and his conflict with the kingdoms of this realm. If it were an App Store iOS game, there would be a little avatar with a picture of Jesus' head and it would say Kingdom Clash underneath it. Because Matthew is written with this intent. It's going to start now with a clash with Herod. It's going to bring into view wise men from people in other lands that are ruled by other people. Jesus is going to come in conflict with the rulers historically, politically of his day. More than that, we're going to see Jesus interacting with and coming to grips with and in conflict clashing with the ruling authorities of the religious class of his day. If Jesus, and because Jesus reigns, he will say things like, you've heard it said, in other words, those religious rulers said, but a new sheriff is in town. But I say, and there will be a clash. Much of Jesus' ministry will be marked by his interactions with the supernatural. He will, time and time again, completely dominate and own demons. Well, what is Matthew getting at except to say that a king has come and he has dominion over this realm of rule? Eventually, the book will conclude near the end of Matthew with Jesus giving a speech about the end of all things. There's end times language in Matthew as well. That eventually the temples will be upended, The rulers will be humbled. People from all places and all nations will come in. The very earth itself will undergo an upheaval because the spread of the kingdom of Jesus will have no end. There is not a single molecule, not a single commandment, not a single bit of power that will not be impacted by the Lord who has come. That's what's happening as we're picturing this section of Matthew. And we're going to see how that contrasts with some of the other writers. So let's look at the first six verses now. Then I'll pause to pray. And we'll learn together. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. I'd love to pray just for a moment. Father, we pause because we've read your word. And I ask now that you would help us to acknowledge that we come not as critics. We are not over this word. We're not here to negotiate with it or to judge it. We're not coming alongside. It's not here to slightly help us. But God, we desire to come in submission 
to your teaching, to your revelation, to the person of Jesus. And I pray that you would help us in all of the the vestiges of our own self-rule, the doubt in our minds, the clinging to control, the distractions and temptations, the idols that have set up shop. We ask you, Holy Spirit, bring us low this morning. Convict us. Show us our hardness of heart, our cynicism. And Holy Spirit, comfort us. Wake us and stir us to see what you have for us in Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do simple, something pretty simple, I think, with these six verses. We're going to just walk through them and say, well, what is happening? We're going to take some basic questions of all reading. We're going to ask, what? Who? Where? When? How? Those are going to be the kind of things we're going to say, just of the text, as we walk through it together. And then I'm going to have a couple of conclusions that I wonder if we couldn't pull, that Matthew might want us to think about. And they're going to be based on who will come. The Lord has come. And I think that what Matthew's going to show us as we ask these basic questions of the text is some things to think about, about the surprising nature of who comes to the king. Secondarily, about the submissive nature of all who should come. And then finally, we're going to talk about those who are stubborn and will not come. So the surprising nature of who comes to this king. Second, the submissive nature of coming to the king. And then finally, the stubborn hearts of those who will not come. The first thing that we might want to ask as we read this, perhaps from our vantage point as we read something like this, the first question, you know, you can pick any one of those. Who, what, where, how? For me, maybe the question is just, what is a good place to start? Because this passage, as most of you know, it's been enshrined in songs and in celebrations of Christmas down through the ages. We three kings. You know that one? The Magi. There's pictures of these things that have gone down through Christian art through the ages. And we've come now to simply gloss over, but if we really think about it from our vantage point, the idea of a glowing, powerful, massive star moving through the heavens to settle over a birthplace should make us ask, what now? It turns out that these men who were essentially their contemporary astronomers It was a mix, of course, of astronomy, I'd say, and astrology, because these wise men from the East would have been of a class of people who were enamored by and believed that there was much to learn concerning the the affairs of earth from what could be viewed in heaven. The stars were a massive part of philosophy, of religion, of political intrigue, and of a budding science concerning these things. There were contemporaries of these wise men. I think wise men is a good term. The magi has been used uh, as well, and I think is, is fit. They were likely a kind of pseudo-scientific, philosophic, rabbinical class, maybe from Babylonia. The reality is we aren't quite sure. But they see and are stirred by a sight in the sky that they cannot shake. 
And it strikes me as I read this that this is odd for a number of reasons. Not only because of the strangeness of the occurrence, which we're going to come to in a minute, but simply because we are so far removed from any observation of the stars. When I stop to think about modern life and all of its conveniences, tapping a piece of glass, someone brings you a fully cooked pizza. This is modern life. Touching a switch, perfect, consistent, safe light in any room you want. This is modern life. One of the great drawbacks of modern life is light pollution and the fact that for many of us, we live life consistently forgetting that there is a world of complete and utter magic and mystery and wonder above us every evening. How sad is it that I could ask a meaningful question and throw out a sort of icebreaker if we were around a coffee table together and I could say, when is the last time you saw the stars? My guess is that for a person of this day and age, that would have sounded the most ridiculous comment of all time. Like asking someone who grew up in North Dakota, when is the last time you saw snow? Well, other than eight to nine months of the year, you mean? Because imagine a world where there is no artificial light, where when darkness comes, the sky comes alive, shimmering and shining with whatever light you can have until, unless you had a fire or until the next morning had come. And seeing a miraculous level of stars would have been a consistent experience for anyone in this day and age. It's sad to me that around a coffee table I could say, when was the last time you really saw the stars? And you might say something like, oh, I remember in 2015, I was, imagine this, I was outside in the dark in the wilderness. I thought about this little moment because twice last year, this is not common for me, I probably would have said, I remember back in a time, but twice last year during the summer I had an opportunity to see stars. Once at Bryce Canyon National Park with our family, it is an international dark sky location. I'm not sure how you get in on that, on that thing, but they, were, they applied apparently and got in. That means they leave observatory or little like lookout areas of the park open all night. And you can drive out there at midnight or whatever near there like our family did, and you can shut off the lights of your car and make sure nobody's got their phones. Just imagine all the light pollution. It's just everywhere. You turn all that off and you can just stand and gawk for what can turn easily in two hours. We stood out there and we remembered, oh wow, the stars are amazing. And you can see how there was an entire class of wise people, curious people, seeking knowledge, saying, what is this place that we live? More than that, what are those places that we don't live? I also got an opportunity driving in southern Wyoming over the summer we're supposed to get in in the afternoon to a place that we were, I was going with a group of pastors, but we were super late because flying, <laughs> that's just, there's just no other reason, it's just, you know, we flew, so of course it didn't work out well, that's the, that's the context of our day and age. And the young guy who was driving us out nearing 1 a.m. in the morning said, you know, while we're out here on this 14-mile back-and-forth cow kind of road, I think we should stop because have you seen the stars lately? And of course, all of us, like in modern people, say, well, not very often, actually. And he stopped, and we stood out, and for the first time in a long time, 
the reality of the vastness of the sky presented itself. The reality that you can see the Milky Way just hanging out up there. Oh, wow. There's a band of semi-shimmering light and a ton of stars right there, and you can just see it. Or at least you could if any of us, you know, went outside and then didn't have endless streetlights or whatever else is happening. So imagine a world where this is a common and a normal occurrence, and the people who are the philosophers slash religious leaders of the day slash sort of pseudoscientists of the day are studying these things. And what we realize is that Jesus is born into a time when men like this have become convinced of a couple of things. There have been historical events that seem to indicate there's a connection between what happens in the sky and what happens on earth. It seems as though at the death of Julius Caesar, there was an amazing comet-like experience. And so people began to think, wow, maybe when a significant ruler either is born or dies, the sky does something weird. More than that, those who would have known of Jewish scriptures from of old have realized that there were indications or little hints that perhaps the sky would foretell the coming of a ruler. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, if we read this in our modern day, we'd say, well, star is completely and nearly figurative, almost universally figurative. They did not take it that way. They said it could be that not only will a ruler arise out of these places from Jacob, but it will be connected to some event in the sky. And it was well known by those who studied that they should be watching these things, not only because books of wisdom, including Jewish and Hebrew scriptures, said so, but because of these very odd coincidental experiences with rulers they knew. And so they come. And what they saw was his star. That's the way they name it in verse 2. The reality is we don't know exactly what star it is. My favorite surmising, which was there for a lot of years, as Christians surmised that this was perhaps Halley's Comet. And I don't know about you, but I was a kid of the 80s, and Halley's Comet was a big deal because Halley's Comet showed up in the 80s. And if those of you who, if there's someone here who has evidence otherwise that it didn't come through in the 80s, don't tell me, it'll ruin my whole childhood. But I just remember thinking, wow, comets are a big deal. There were pictures of comets on all kinds of things. People talked about the idea of shooting stars often. There were conversations about, did you see it? Would you see it? Were you alive when you saw it? Would you be alive when it came the next time? Halley's Comet was a big deal. It turns out, though, that it is likely not what was happening when Jesus was born. Halley's Comet went through in 11 BC, which would have been far too early for the wise men to have seen it from the east and said, let's go do that. There's other people who have surmised perhaps it was a coming together like a perfect storm of brightness, Jupiter and Venus and some new star all aligning perfectly with the earth. Maybe it was just a brightness that happened in a sort of fit of astronomic serendipity. The idea here, though, is that it seems like that is probably not what's taking place because later on in Matthew chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that this star not only rose up and went into the sky, but then came and seemed to intentionally rest 
over the place where the child was born. In other words, it was more UFO than odd bright star occurrence. Whatever it was, it is perhaps on the order of miraculous in the same way that the virgin conception would have been miraculous. And Matthew wants us to see that those who are paying attention to significant dealings of humankind and human kingdoms were very aware that this seemed like an announcement of sorts. So what happened is a star rose and people came. Now we ask, well, who is introduced to the meaning of Matthew chapter 2? And it's interesting to me that Matthew foregoes all of the sweetness of the actual birth of Jesus. You know how on Christmas, if you're here on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, or maybe with your family you gathered, you start and you read the Christmas story, and you always pick Luke chapter 2 because it describes the inn, and it describes the, the actual birth itself, and you get this picture of animals around, it's, it's nativity on display. Matthew has none of that. The end of verse 25 in Matthew chapter 1 is, she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Boom, fast forward probably 18 months to three years, and the wise men are coming. I believe that he's showing this because he's, his focus is how the birth of Jesus interacted with the rulers of his day. Note the number of times king, ruler, is used in these few short verses. He was born when? Well, in the days of Herod, the king. Wise men came from the east, and what did they say? There's been born a king, and we've come to worship him. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He assembled the chief priests and the scribes, and he asked where the Christ, so reminder, Christ is not a last name, it's a title. He's essentially saying, where is the Messiah supposed to be the one, the one to rule them all? Where is that supposed to be? Where is that supposed to be? And then he quote from, Matthew, or from Micah chapter 5, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, by no means least among rulers, for you will, from, from you shall come a ruler. So Matthew shows, he speeds past the sweetness of the birth itself, and he wants to show Jesus up against the rulers of the age. So Herod hears this comment that the king of the Jews has been born, and he is perplexed. He is troubled. It might be helpful for us to learn a little bit about this Herod. He is a central figure. He's the first to interact with, or we see his response, it seems, to Jesus, one of the first to see. And unless you're a student on the side of Roman regional rulership, you may not know much about Herod. Herod had a very famous and powerful father. It's part of the reason that he got the job that he got. Some things don't change, right? Anyway, sorry. That's a little dig. A little dig on the dig on the world there. Anyway, Herod had a very influential and powerful father in Roman circles. It's part of the reason that he got this job. It turns out a second reason that he got the job is that he turned out to be a very competent and wildly impressive leader, which is good. Sometimes having a leader that's competent is a good thing. He became known as one of the most prominent builders of the age. One of the reasons his name persists so regularly, you might not remember this when you page through the rest of the Gospels, his name seems to come up a lot. Partly, it's not because he's alive. Spoiler, he dies by the end of this chapter. 
but it's because he built so much stuff. He ran his campaign for rulership basically on like high rises with Herod or something. You know, I don't know who the campaign manager would have been. Build Back Better was essentially his, his campaign promise. It seems like he loved infrastructure and building, was a capable architect, could organize massive projects, and got more done. He came to power sometime around 40 BC, and in his 30 plus years of ruling, seems to have got more done than in decades previous. That's why you're going to read through the Gospels and you're going to say in the backdrop, and then they came through praying and talking at Herod's gate because he was a massive builder. He put his name on a lot of things. I didn't want to, I could have used examples locally, but I felt like it would have, you know, been critical or something. But just imagine names on buildings and things. And Herod was like that, except politically and economically wise. But perhaps more than that, and this is one of the key figures in this day and age, in this area, in Judea, because Herod seemed particularly adept at handling what to the Roman Empire would have been the Jewish problem. You see, the, this group of Jewish people were nearly universally and certainly consistently stubborn. They did not want to worship the pagan gods in the way that everyone was required to in the Roman Empire. They hated, in fact, didn't want to pay homage to the Caesar of the day, which was always a problem. They had issues with the way that their worship took place, what happened economically on the Sabbath. They were concerned about taxes and money. The influence that they had came more from their religious leaders than those who had an army or power. And so, historically, the Jewish people were a very difficult people to rule for the Roman Empire. And Roman history tells us that Herod was wonderfully adept at keeping the Jewish people in check. He had just the right amount of iron-fisted, straightforward power and negotiating ability to allow the Jewish people a sort of tenuous kind of existence where they were just stubborn enough to have their own identity but not revolutionary to overthrow the king. And Herod, it seems, had an ability to do this in a way that far outstripped any of his contemporaries. So Rome was relieved to say in 40 BC, you know what, why don't you just take control of this whole area? You know how to handle them, that's fine. It's like being the, the person who knows how to get your dog to shut up. You know, like, okay, would you just go? Or like the child who cannot stop crying until they get with mama. Sometimes you just got to solve the problem with mom. Herod, it seemed like, was that kind of figure. They solved the problem of these frisky, refusing to bow Jewish people with Herod. So the reason that Matthew knows so well the condition of the kingdom of the day is because, as you recall, Matthew is a tax collector employed by the Roman Empire. He's in the system. He's an insider. He knows how things work. And he is bringing now into stark contrast for us a world where there is political and power tensions, a group of people, the people of God, who are pressing back against this moment of them being in a minority and not ruling or not receiving the promises they've had, a Roman empire that desires to keep the peace, and Herod, who has been effective but is clinging to his role. That's the tension that Matthew places for us. 
one more question to ask. When does this take place? Well, it turns out that we're not sure exactly the date, and I hate to say it for people who maybe didn't hear this before, but there's a lot about the birth of Jesus that we don't know the exact dates. I'll start with Christmas. Jesus was not born on Christmas Day. I'm very sorry to anyone who's not heard this before or the children that are in, but I will encourage you with this. Christmas Day is absolutely Jesus' birthday party, and you don't want to miss the party, so you got to be there and celebrate the thing, but it was not, we don't know for sure that he was born on that day. It's likely that he was born in a springtime sometime, which, which day we're not certain. Now, here's another conundrum. Herod, as you'll find out in the rest of chapter 2, it turns out that he dies by the end of this section while Jesus is still a child, likely a toddler kind of child. And what we find out and later, and have since learned from Roman historians, is that Herod is well documented to having reigned beginning around 40 BC and for certain dying in 4 BC. Herod dies 4 BC, which if you're paying attention in class is 4 before Christ. Now some of you, some of you are good. Right now you're saying, wait a minute, mister. This doesn't work out. The timeline is broken. And the reality is, yes, it's broken. And I hate to tell you this, but every time you wish someone a happy 2023, you've been lying. It turns out that the man who was in charge of setting the Roman calendar hundreds of years from this moment did not have access to the correct records concerning Herod's death. He chose or sort of picked a time in the year that he thought Jesus was born and then set everything up according to that. This man's name was Dionysus the Small. It's just a cruel name. Just a really cruel name. Height dynamics never die. They just never die. The amount of prejudice. I just can't even believe it. So this poor guy had a massively important job. He didn't have all the information, and he was a little incompetent which describes just about every person in authority that I've ever met. <laughs> has a massively important job that's a little bit too big for him, has to deal with lack of information, and is somewhat incompetent for the responsibility they have. And what that leaves us with is we've all been lying about the calendar now for 2,023 years. It's likely somewhere around 2,028 if you want to set the calendar on the birth of Jesus. Maybe 2029, but we're not really sure. But when this takes place, is Jesus in the early days of his toddler life, probably, and the wise men come. And it's with all of these things set that we envision their journey coming from somewhere out east, traveling west, following the star, landing first with Herod the king, who is in the seat of power in Jerusalem. And they go to him first because he's ruling, and they figured that he would know and perhaps be ready to receive this new king that was born. They say, we've come to worship him. And Herod is troubled by this. But it turns out that the wise men are correct in where they're coming. They know that someone has been born. They need directions to the city. And when Herod turns to find out, we realize that this was a well-known reality, that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Christ. 
He asks everybody, chief priest, did you know there's supposed to be a king born where? He asks the scribes, where is this supposed to be? And everyone immediately says, oh yeah, it's totally been written. This has been prophesied forever. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, Bethlehem, the birthplace of David, the birthplace of, of our king, of our people who was promised a throne forever. That's where. Bethlehem is south, slightly to the east, but south and to the east of Jerusalem. It is an unassuming, mostly unassuming, small town, paling in comparison to Jerusalem. Not fully or completely obscure, but certainly not the place of pomp and circumstance. And this is where the wise men head. So we've gotten the what? A star. The who? Magi, wise men following this star. The who, Herod, this king, the where, Bethlehem, the place of a promise of King David's lineage down through the ages. And what remains, I think, is to reflect on what we should learn about who is coming. It's quite amazing, actually, that Matthew focuses on this group in this moment. He doesn't talk about Simeon. He doesn't mention Elizabeth. John the Baptist, he doesn't mention any other interactions with the receiving of this king, save this clash of kingdoms. And I think that there are a few things to remember or to think about or to ponder as we consider, is it joy to the world that the Lord has come? The first is to remember this, that those who do come to receive this king are surprising. You would not think that it would be Basically, pagan Gentile people from a far-off land that would be the first to get it right concerning Jesus. It's been said that Jesus comes to bring in an upside-down kingdom. We're going to see in Matthews 5-7, through as he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, that his ethic, his kingdom ethic, is in fact upside-down. He says, blessed are the poor, not the rich. Blessed are those who mourn, not those who are rejoicing. You should love and bless your enemies, not hate them. Jesus has a kind of upside-down kingdom in his teaching, but what we see here from the beginning of Matthew is that he also has a sort of outside-in establishment of his kingdom. Jesus comes to his own, but they reject him. That's what John chapter 1 says. So that those who come, those who first say, yes, joy to the world, the Lord has come, turn out to be that those who get it right are outsiders. And this is going to be a clue for us. It's going to help us to see what Matthew wants us to see from the very beginning. Eventually, he's going to show us that Jesus told parables about inviting people to a wedding feast. And he's like, no, all the normal people were too busy. All the people you think would show up, they're not going to come. But you know who will come? All of the outsiders, the people in the streets, the byways, the alleyways, the people that don't dress right, that don't have the right watch on, the people who don't have the network, who weren't in the right frat, all of those people, the far off people, they're going to be drawn near. Jesus comes to inaugurate an outside-in kingdom. And we must remember to not limit, but rather to anticipate when God does the surprisingly gracious thing of bringing those who have no other reason to be in, in. I ask myself a question, much like the question of, when was the last time you saw the stars? Maybe a question like this, when was the last time I prayed for or anticipated someone who I had written off? having a spiritual awakening and coming to Christ. 
Do I have a list of people who I'd say, oh man, they live way out east. They don't have the scriptures. They don't have the right pedigree. They'll never come to Jesus. Or they're so in, involved in pagan ritual worship. They have idols. They're secular or whatever long list that it is. And I forget that the kingdom of Jesus is surprising from the very beginning. It's going to be full of people who have no idea how they got in. We inhabit and are citizens of a kingdom that has doors that have pulling arms for all of the most unexpected people to come. Those who are far come near. That's not a coincidence. Matthew is setting a trajectory for the entirety of the message of Jesus. The song doesn't say, Joy to the Jews, the Lord is come, though it should be joy to them. He says, Joy to the world, including you and me. So that's one thing to learn. Let's not write people off. Let's reestablish in our hearts and our mind the surprising nature of this kingdom. How about this? Pray for the worst of these this week. Reach out to the most volatile, the most standoffish. Pray for those who curse Christ. Because what we're learning is that eventually His kingdom will have arms and tentacles that draw people from the far off places. Second, I think what Matthew wants to say here is not only to be surprised and remember at those who will come, but to see how they came. There is a way. And Matthew's setting a course here. A king has been born, and we must come to him in a certain way. Those who came from the east came in humility. They had some knowledge, but not all of it. They were not blinded by what they thought they knew. Those who came from the east came because they believed that there would be great power and great rule coming from this place, so they came humbly, ready to bow. It was those from the east, those who were the outsiders, who understood not only who Jesus was, they gave him the title King of the Jews. That's going to be controversial in Jesus' life. As you recall, that's tagged above his cross. The Jewish leaders say, no, 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 no. He claimed that. You can't put it there. Pilate tells them, what I've written is what's written. It is those who are the outsiders that get it right, and it's those who are the outsiders that show us how to approach. All who would come to Jesus must first reckon with him as king or not reckon with him at all. Jesus has come. He is the Savior of the world, first and foremost by being king of the world. To come to him, we must, to find our life, we must lose it. To gain life, we must die. Jesus is not to be negotiated with, not to be compromised with, not to be co-labored alongside. Jesus comes as ruler. That's the claim that is made on the earth. His first words in his teaching of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' first public sermon is going to be something like this. In fact, exactly like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus must rule or he is not ours. And this means that there is a reckoning for all of us. How do we come to this Christ who has been born? We must come first with humility. 
It means that as we reckon with Jesus, we must willfully, intentionally, and ruthlessly root out any measure of self-rule that remains. We cannot say to Jesus, I would love to have you handle the hardest parts of my life. Hold on just a moment. I'm going to cordon them off so that when you come in, you don't upset the areas that I want to keep to myself. To have Jesus, to have the joy that he brings is to receive him him as Lord or have him not at all. You know, the funny thing here is that Herod got it right. Herod is not much to imitate in this chapter. He has infanticidal tendencies. There's not much to imitate except that his instincts are exactly right here. He sees the Magi coming. They say, the king of the Jews has been born. We're going to worship him. And Herod immediately knows, wait, if he's king, I can't be anymore. You're saying a Lord has been born? That makes a claim on me. And he gets a little nervous because he knows that this might undo all that he has. And the reality is that those who would come to Jesus in faith, faith must see themselves as having nothing They must see a kingdom that is worth jettisoning all former allegiances. Jesus is going to tell a parable in this chapter, in this book, in Matthew. He's going to say something like this. You know what the kingdom's like? It's like finding a treasure hidden in a field, and then you go back and you carefully select the things that you can part with, and you just make sure that only those things get eBayed, and then you take the profits and the proceeds, and you buy that thing to set alongside all the other stuff that you had. Is that the parable? That's not the parable. The parable is this. You find a treasure hidden in a field and a guy says, oh my goodness, this changes everything. I have no more claim on anything else I have. I'm just going to get rid of everything else. All allegiance is gone so that I can have this. Jesus' kingdom is an either-or kingdom. And that petty little, silly little, ongoing temptation in our hearts to believe that one day we will be welcomed to the throne of Jesus by taking a little side throne next to him must be killed in us. It means that we don't rule, we don't reign. We're not as in control as we thought we were in control. It means that his commands are not mere suggestions. A king has come. And we must come to him as king. Finally, I think we should ponder and realize that the king has landed and there's going to be a a counting of the cost and there will be some who are stubborn and will not come. I made the comment earlier about kingdom clash because there's going to be a clashing. Harold is troubled and all of Jerusalem is troubled and the chief priests answer the question, but they don't go. It's actually really amazing. Herod, the ruler and the king, who was a steward of earthly power, needed to welcome this king of all of the universe. Herod, whose very life is upheld by the word of power of Jesus, should have handed over. He did not. The chief priests and the scribes, who were the insiders and should have known, they should have been hosting the star parties. Remember when there was an eclipse and everyone had eclipse parties? Our family drove nine hours to go sit and to watch the, the sun disappear. It was unbelievable. People were hosting these parties. It was all over the news. It should have been the chief priests and scribes, but instead they were stubborn and they did not come. 
they had counted the cost, and they realized that if Jesus was to rule, then they could not. And the rest of this book, in many ways, through Matthew, is going to be about this dividing line. Those who see Jesus as Lord of all and rejoice and gladly bow the knee and say there's a kingdom that has come and there's no other like it. And those who, to their detriment and ultimately to them being lost forever, will cling to their little fiefdoms of human rule. This king who has come has made a dividing line through all of human history. A day is coming. In fact, one of the contrasts between Jesus and Herod is this little detail. Herod comes to power and is inaugurated with all the pomp and circumstance of Rome, placed as king and ruler over Judea and Jerusalem at age 33. To gather to himself worshipers through his competence, his ability, his power, and his pride. And Jesus is born. He lives a perfect life, a righteousness, a holy life that you and I should have lived and could not. He dies a complete sinner's death, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved. And he is inaugurated to his place in heaven at age 33. A king who rules through mercy and grace and humility in order to welcome all who would bow the knee to him. Government and rule is unavoidable. And you will either suffer under the tyrant-like rule of self-determination or the terrorizing rule of earthly or secular government around you, or you will be wakened to new life and eternal bliss by a king who beckons you with humility and grace and forgiveness and who has come near to draw in those who are far by absorbing the death that we all deserved. That's the image that Matthew's placing for us. These are the contrasts and the reality of a kingdom that is being established. For now, there is an opportunity. For now, there is a question. Do you see and receive Jesus as king here and now or not? But there is coming a day where the option will no longer be on the table. Because Jesus will come one day not as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, but on a white horse with a sword from his mouth. He'll reveal his throne and take his rightful place. For those of us who have already received this king, we say joy to the world.